again this week. So, Anyway, let's take our Bibles and we're going to open up to Luke chapter 2. We've dealt with the birth of Jesus. We've dealt with the birth of John the Baptist. And now we're going to look at events following Jesus' birth. And Jesus' parents, like other Jewish parents, had to follow a prescribed ritual when their children were born. In the case of a male, it included circumcision, consecration of the male child to the Lord, and then purification of the mother. And so Joseph and Mary have to go through this ritual which is prescribed in the law of Moses. And in the midst of this, these normal events that every Jewish family would have to go through, their paths cross two very interesting people. The first is Simeon, whom we will look at, and the second is a woman who is in later years of life by the name of Anna. And the Lord has their paths intersect for a purpose. One of the purposes, we think, is that they will give a witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. The angel said that Jesus was the Messiah. He has told that to uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias. He's told that to Mary and Joseph. But now we will have earthly witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's take our Bibles and look at Luke chapter 2. And we'll pick up at verse 21. And we're going to see... Circumcision, consecration, and purification. First circumcision. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here we have the circumcision of Jesus at the age of eight. Now this is based on God's instruction to... Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, that every male child would be circumcised as a sign of God's covenant with his people. God wanted a sign. It was going to be a sign that was made in human flesh. And that sign indicated that God had established a covenant with his people. And in Jesus' day, circumcision would not have been done by a surgeon, but it would have been done by a rabbi in the home of the parents. Now remember, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Their home, however, is up in Nazareth, but they're still in Bethlehem at this point. And we believe that they're going to stay in this area for a long time. We know from uh, Matthew's Gospel, for example, that when Herod discovered that Jesus was born, the new king of the Jews was born, he killed all male children under the age of two. So it's very possible that Jesus and his parents stayed in the Bethlehem area for a period of time. So that's the circumcision. Now we come to the consecration. Look at verse 22. Now when the days of her, that would be Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, which is found over in Exodus, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem. Now watch this. Number one, to present him to the Lord. You see that? Number one, to present him to the Lord. Look in verse 24. And number two, to offer a sacrifice. So first of all, let's look at the consecration. They brought him, in verse 22, and presented him to the Lord. 
Now notice where they brought him, to Jerusalem. That's about six miles from Bethlehem. So they had to make a little trek. And notice when they brought him. It says, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him. So Mary had to go through a long period of purification. It lasted with the birth of a, a male child 40 days and with the birth of a female child 80 days. So she had to go through a ritual. And so they bring Jesus and they present him. Notice where they present, what, why they present him. They present him to the Lord, it says. Look at verse 23. As it is written, notice that's a parenthesis. Luke is going to explain this to Theophilus. This guy that he's writing his gospel to, Theophilus is probably a Greek, doesn't understand purification and circumcision and all these things. So he's going to explain it to him. And so he says, as it is written, this is why this was done, as it is written in the law of the Lord, back in Exodus 13 and Numbers 3 and various places, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord. Every child who opens the womb, that means a firstborn. Not the secondborn, not the thirdborn, not the fourthborn, but the one who initially opens a woman's womb, which means the firstborn son, had to be presented to the Lord, set apart for the Lord's service, according to the law. This was based on the fact that after God spared the Jewish firstborn during the Exodus, remember the firstborn of the Jews were spared, but the firstborn of Egypt were put to death. God said, since I spared your firstborn, from this point on, every time there's a firstborn, that child has to be consecrated to my service and has to serve me the rest of his life in the temple. Remember when Hannah prayed? She said, Lord, give me a child. Give me a child. She couldn't have a child. God gave her a child. Remember the child's name? Samuel. Samuel. What did she do? She put him in the temple and he served the Lord in the temple under Eli. That was the requirement. But God provided a, gave a provision that you could actually buy your child back. You wouldn't have to leave him in the temple and let him serve there the whole time. You could buy him back. That was called redemption. And the redemption price was five shekels. So you would take your firstborn, you present him to, to the priest at the temple. The priest would say, do you want to redeem your child? Or do you want to leave him here? And you say, I want to redeem him. He said, let me get that right. You know, this is like, he said, do you want to redeem your child? Or do you want to leave him here? Just like on, on your computer, you know, when you try to delete something, it says, are you sure? <laughs> I want you to make a mistake. So the priest said, well, are you sure you want to leave him here? <laughs> yes. Then he'd ask a third time, are you sure you want to redeem him? Or do you want to leave him, leave him here? We want to redeem him. He said, okay, five shekels. And they'd pass out the shekels. And then once the shekels were paid, then the priest would bless the child. There'd be a blessing sent over the child and there would be followed a banquet like a lot of religious ceremonies have banquets and all that's found 
in the law of Moses. And that's why it says that, according to the law. So that's the consecration of the pure, uh, or the, uh, the dedication of the child. Now we come to the purification. Look at verse 24. And they came to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law. Always it's in the law. And here's the sacrifice. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this was a ceremony that was based on the woman being purified. Uh, when a woman had a child, she was ceremonially, 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 ceremoniously, thank you, uh, unclean. And so she had to be cleansed. And that involved the process. It involved the sacrifice. Now let me show this to you. Keep your finger here and turn over to Leviticus chapter 12. We could have looked at all the different Old Testament passages, but we'll just look at this one for the sake of time. And notice how the woman is cleansed of her impurity. Leviticus chapter 12. And when you get there, we're going to read the entire chapter, which is only eight verses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean. Then on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That's the circumcision. So you have seven days, and you have the day of circumcision. That's probably eight days. And then she shall continue in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing. Can't touch anything that's sacred. Nor come into the sanctuary. That's the temple, the court of the women. Until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Now notice, she continues... Unclean for 33 days. So there was a seven day, a one day for the circumcision, another 33 days. That's over 40 days. So we know that Mary brings Jesus to be consecrated in the temple after her purification. 40 days have passed since his birth. Now look at verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in the customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. Two weeks, 14 days, 66 days, that's 80 days. Two months. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering. This was an offering of complete surrender to the Lord. That's what you had to do. So I'm surrendering myself to you. And a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering. To the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. Then he, that's the priest, shall offer it before the Lord. And make an atonement for her. Sin had to be atoned for. Shows that Mary is a sinner. Mary is not without sin. She's a sinner. Her sin has to be atoned for. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her. Who, was, who has born a male or a female. 
And if she's not able to bring a lamb, in other words, you're a peasant, you're poor, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. And so the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be deemed clean. She shall be ritually cleansed. So this is what's happening in Luke. So if you go back to Luke, you can understand what's happening. We have Jesus' circumcision in verse 21. Then after the days of her purification in verse 22, which means at the end of 40 days, she brings Jesus consecrates him at the temple. You want to redeem him? Yes. You want to redeem him? Yes. Pay the five shekels. And now, after that, she has to go through a ceremony. And because Joseph and Mary are poor, they're going to bring the turtle doves and they're going to bring the, bring the pigeons. And so they are a poor family. Now what happens next in verse 25 is we see their paths crossing with two very interesting people. Look at verse 25. And behold, that word is an attention grabber. In other words, while they're going through this, these normal customs, suddenly, look, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Look at verse 27. And so he came, that Simeon came, by the Spirit, into the synagogue, or the temple, rather. And look at verse 28. And he took him, that's Jesus, up in his arms. So here this man crossed their paths. Now what do we know about this guy? Well, verse 25 says his name was Simeon. Look what else it says. This man was just and devout. That means he is a pious Jew. He's a law-observing Jew. Look what else we know about him. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Jewish prophet said, tried to console the Jewish people and said, you won't always be under bondage. God's going to send the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will deliver you from oppression. This was the messianic hope. This was an eschatological expectation. Pious Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come on the scene. They didn't know when it would happen, but the prophet said it would happen. And this man was waiting for that. That's how pious he was. And it says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. So now we know that there's a, this is a, a man who is, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Look at that. He's not only empowered by the Holy Spirit, but he's given knowledge by the Holy Spirit. It was revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Here you have two sights. One a negative sight, one a positive sight. The negative. You won't see death. You won't die. How would you like this promise? You won't die until the second sight, until you've seen the Lord's Messiah. What a promise that is. And he believed it, evidently, because he was a pious man. He had God's word on it. And so look at this. And so he came by the Spirit. Did you notice that? The Spirit was upon him in verse 25. He was empowered by the Spirit. 
The Spirit revealed something to him in verse 26. And now verse 27, he's guided by the Spirit. He came by the Spirit into the temple. And so he has this anticipation that the Messiah has come, and he's been assured that he will not see death until the Lord returns, or until the Lord comes, the Messiah comes. Now look what Simeon does at this point in verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom, in other words, the dedication service, he, that Simeon, took him up, took Jesus up in his arms, and he praised God. He blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What word? The word that was revealed to him back in 26, that he wouldn't see death until the Lord's Messiah had come. You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And here's his motive for praising the Lord. Look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your deliverance. My eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, that promise that you made to me, that vow that you made to me, that word that you've given to me has been kept. And now... I'm ready to depart, which is very interesting. He describes death as a departure. Verse 26, shall not see death. Verse 29, now your servant can depart in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation. And then in verse 31, look what he says. Which, you see that? What does which refer back to? Salvation. Deliverance. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. This is a salvation that's offered to all people. This is a salvation that's going to affect the entire world. Ultimately, God's kingdom is going to come and he's going to reign over the entire world. It's a universal salvation in that sense. But notice also what it says. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. This message of salvation and this Messiah who's coming is delivering a revelation. It's a revelation of light to the Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles need light? Because they're in darkness. That's why we need the light. <clears throat> and so, this message, and this message of salvation, this whole salvation package, is a light or a revelation to bring a revelation to the Gentiles who are in darkness. And it glorifies your people Israel. It shows Israel for who they really are, your people. It glorifies Israel. So what we have here is we have this, in a sense, a prophecy that's coming out of the mouth of Simeon. This man who's 
filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's upon him is uttering words by the Holy Spirit. These aren't words that he just made up. These are words that the Holy Spirit has given him. Now look at verse 33. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They couldn't believe what was being said. It was unbelievable what was being said. The angel said it. Now it's been confirmed by a human witness. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus and the gospel are the light and the glory of the people of Israel. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child, along with this message that he's bringing, is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now notice what this message and what this child, Jesus, who is the Messiah, is destined to do amongst the people. It will produce a fall, and it will produce a rising. It will cause some people to fall. Jesus will cause some people to fall. And his message will call, cause some people to fall. And others, it will lift them up. And that's why one commentator said that Jesus here is being described as a stone. He's either a stumbling stone over which you fall, or he's a stepping stone upon which you're lifted up. And I think that's a good description, even though this, this scripture doesn't mention that he is a stone. But what you have is in a prophecy, basically, being uttered at this point by Simeon. And so the gospel will either cause some people to fall, or it will cause some people to be lifted up, to step higher. And not only that, look what Jesus in the gospel is at the end of verse 34. It's not only a stone a stumbling stone or a stepping stone, but a sign which will be spoken against. Christ is a sign and his message is a sign. A sign is something that reveals something. That points to something. Points to salvation. Points to the way back to the Father. Points to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is a sign, but guess what? He's spoken against. And the message that he preaches is spoken against. There's resistance to this message. Now remember, he said that it's a light, this gospel message, and Jesus himself is a light. And a light produces all kinds of results. In fact, look at verse... He's a sign that's spoken against. And then notice what you have in verse 35. You have parentheses again. Do you see that? That means you can actually skip the parentheses and read the next phrase, and it, and it would make sense. For a sign which is spoken against, and they'll skip the parentheses, that or so that in order that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Christ is a sign that will reveal, and his message is a sign that will reveal the hearts of people. And some people will speak against Christ. And that's what Christ is. Christ reveals the condition of the human heart. And the gospel reveals the condition of the human heart. When the gospel is preached, there are believing hearts and there are unbelieving hearts. And guess what determines, what reveals which heart is a believing heart and which heart is an unbelieving heart? 
It's the gospel that's preached. And when the gospel's preached, suddenly either you resist it, and it reveals that your heart is hardened, or you accept it, and it reveals your heart is a heart of belief. Up until that time, you didn't know what kind of heart you had. And some, that gospel will lift them up. And others, it will cause them to stumble. Because they will resist it, and they will speak against it. The gospel reveals whether you have a hard heart or whether you have a soft heart. The gospel light will either open your eyes and help you to see better. It will reveal your eyesight. Or it will blind you. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Bob Smith's here. He's blind. He has retinitis pigmentosa. He wasn't born that way. He's pastored a church for years. And the light, if I held up a light, it would reveal which people in this room have sight and which people don't have sight. Now, just looking around, we all look like we have sight, but we know one person in the room who doesn't have sight at this point real well, and that's Bob. So if I hold up a light, guess what? It and he can't see it. Then what does that reveal to us? He's blinded. If I hold up a light to Jim Lang and he sees it, guess what that reveals? He sees. It's an amazing thing. That's what the gospel does. It reveals your heart. It reveals your thinking and your mind. So, you bring the light into the room. For some, it helps see, and others, it doesn't. So, that's the, the basic point here. And the scripture says that Jesus is the light that comes into the world and lightens every man. And the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit. And it discerns the intents and the motives of the heart. And so, the word of God and the gospel in Christ reveal the nature of your heart. And then it says in that parenthesis that we skip, yes. Yes. Now remember, this is Simeon saying this. Yes. And he's saying it to Mary. A soul, a sword, will pierce through your soul also. You won't be exempt. When you discover and hear the message that Jesus preached... The condition of your heart will be revealed as well. Now, a lot of commentators try to say, this is Mary standing at the foot of the cross and John standing next to her, and she sees her son dying, and she just pierced in their heart. But that's not what that's talking about. It says a sword will pierce your soul, what? Also, just like everybody else's. And that's what it does. Even in Mary's family, it will reveal who are believers and who are not believers. Remember when Mary and Jesus' brothers came to take Jesus out of the house? They said, he's crazy. Let's get him home. People think we're, the whole family's nuts if we don't get rid of this guy. Bring him home, wasn't it? And Mary was right there with him. And one of his disciples said, Jesus, your, your mother and brothers are outside. And he said, well, who is my mother and my brother? Those that do the will of my father. That's my mother. And that's my brother. See, it's how you relate to Jesus and how you relate to the gospel that determines the condition of your heart. And even Mary herself is going to have to go through that process of examining her own life to see where she is. And so here you have this witness 
a human witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the gospel he's preaching indeed is a light unto salvation. Now, look what happens in verse 36. We have a second person that crosses their path. And this time it's a woman. Now we think Simeon is old. And the reason we think Simeon is old is because God said you won't die until. That sounds like a promise that you're going to live a long time until. You won't, you'll live a long time. Don't worry about dying. You'll, you won't die until the Messiah comes. And now we have a woman who we're going to discover is probably even older than Simeon. Look what it says. Now there was one Anna. Hebrew equivalent is, is Hannah. <coughs> Basically the word means grace. A prophetess. One who speaks by the Holy Spirit. I would say Simeon was a prophet, wouldn't you? And here's a woman who's a prophetess. That's very rare in Israel. Only seven women in the Old Testament were called prophetesses. And this woman is called a prophetess. The daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, which is one of the northern tribes, and yet this woman is down here in the south in Judah. She's here in Jerusalem. She was of a great age and lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And the woman was a widow about 84 years. Now what we have here is we have a description of this woman. It says she lived with a husband for seven years from her virginity. Now there's two ways you can look at this. One is you could say this woman got married when she was about 14 years old. She lived with her husband seven years. And he died. Now how old is she? She's 21. And then it says, look what it says there at the end of uh, verse 36. Husband from seven years from Virginia. This woman was a widow about what? 84 years. Now, if she's been a widow for 84 years, this makes her 105. The other explanation is simply she's 84. We're not sure whether, and that's hard based on the translation, whether she's 84 or whether she's 105. But she's between 84 and 105. Now, very interesting, as Lynn pointed out in the car as we were coming over today. <coughs> this, George Smith wonders where I get my messages, and I said, Lynn writes them and he believes it. So this is going to confirm that. In the middle of verse 36, look what it says. She was of a great age. Being 84 is a great age. <laughs> Being 105 is a great age. You're between 84 and 105, and you're in this classroom. I want you to know that's a great age. <laughs> not only great years, but it's a great age. Now, I'm not sure the text says that, but Lynn says it, so that's, that's good enough. Okay. Now, look what it says here. who did not, in the middle of verse 37, who did not depart from the temple. This is a woman who stayed in the temple. But served God with fastings and prayers day and night. Scripture talks in Psalms about people who served in the temple day and night, praying 
uh, on behalf of others and on behalf of the nation. Evidently, this was a woman who was a widow. She had given herself, she had not remarried. She had given herself totally over to the Lord, consecrated her life to the Lord. May have had a room in the temple complex. It was about a 45-acre complex. In exchange, she worked in the temple, and she was a woman of great prayer. Just like Simeon, she would be a devout and a righteous and a just woman. And coming in, look at verse 38, meaning into the temple compound where Mary and Joseph was. In that instant, in that instant, at what instant? When Simeon is lifting Jesus up and blessing God and giving his prophecy, that's when she walks in, in that instant. She gave thanks to the Lord. Is that what Simeon had just done? Yeah, that's what Simeon had just done. He said he blessed the Lord. She does exactly the same thing. She's a prophetess. And she spoke of him, and in this case I think it would be the Lord and his Messiah, to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, this means that this woman either went out and began to talk about the gospel, talked about Jesus, saying the Messiah has come, or, as Simeon, after he praised the Lord, he then began to speak forth words about the Messiah. And uh, I think maybe that's what she was doing. She was prophesying and speaking of him to all those remnant Jews, those believing Jews who were looking for redemption, who were looking for freedom, just as it means to, uh, to redemption is talking about deliverance, it's talking about salvation. The Jews were looking for the consolation of Israel. Not everybody, not some of the Pharisees, not some of the Sadducees, not some of the religious and political uppity-ups, but there was a remnant of pious Jews that were looking who were coming to the temple, making their sacrifices, their daily sacrifices. I believe this one may have simply just gone into a prophecy and began to speak of the Messiah and the redemption that is found in the Messiah. Or she could have gone out and talked to people, people who were receptive. That's the case. That's a great example of us doing that. But I think what Luke's trying to tell us is that the angel says, Jesus will be the Messiah. And now it's being confirmed by two witnesses. Simeon, a man filled with the Spirit, and Anna, a prophetess. So this is a temple scene. And so when they had performed all the things according to the law, verse 39, they returned to Galilee. Now we don't know exactly how long that was. It was probably months or maybe even a year to their own city, Nazareth. Now let me make a couple concluding thoughts. <clears throat> There's a tendency amongst people when they retire to retire from the Lord's service as well. They not only retire from work, but they retire from the Lord's service. Here are two old timers who are serving the Lord. They are pious. They are godly people, and they just continue to serve the Lord. And one of the things that we need to do is continue to serve the Lord. In fact, we're 
many cases, we're, we're freer to serve the Lord when we're retired than when we're working 40 or 50 hours a week. Both of these individuals were expecting God to fulfill his prophecy. Possibly both expected him to fulfill the prophecy in their lifetime. Now we know that Christ says he's coming again. Now I'm not a prophecy nut, and you know that. But we should be looking for the Lord to fulfill his prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and setting up his kingdom on this earth. Just as much as Simeon was expecting the Messiah to come. Simeon didn't have it all together. Simeon didn't understand the millennium and well, the church age. He didn't understand a lot of that. But he believed that God was going to do something special, and he was looking for it. And God made him a promise. His promise that was that he wouldn't die before the Messiah came. Would you like a promise? Would you? I'd like that promise. I wish God would make me that promise. But whether he makes me that promise or not, my goal is to live to be 105. I want you to know that. I'm not, I'm not interested in 84. I'm interested in 105. But the fact of the matter is, it is indeed possible. that there'll be some of us in this room who don't die before the Lord comes. And if you don't think it's possible, then you don't believe what God said to Simeon. You won't die until you see the Lord's consolation and God kept his word. And it's very possible that the Lord could come before some of us die. So these are two people who are witnesses to the truthfulness of God's word. And that's what we're to be. We are to be witnesses to the truthfulness of God's word, and we're to stand up and say to the people, one of the, Luke's great themes is the theme of witnessing. He's, what the book of Acts is all about, witnessing. We're to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and you can count on it. And we're to be witnesses, and it's not just the students at Criswell College who are to be witnesses. It's the people at that great age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for two witnesses. It gives us hope that we can be witnesses. We also have the assurance that your word is true and it will come to pass just as you've said. We don't understand when, we don't understand how, but Lord, it could happen in our lifetime. And now in the meantime, help us to be witnesses for your glory about the saving knowledge.